and I charted it out, and we are going to be done the Gospel of John by the beginning of September. And so stick with us through the summer because we are going to examine these, uh, these trials and the crucifixion and resurrection, and then we're going to go into um, a lot of other amazing parts of Scripture in the fall. And so we're looking forward to that. But as of right now, we are moving into the climax, um, the high point and in some ways the low point. Um, from man's perspective, the low point, but from God's perspective, the high point of Jesus' ministry. The narrative right now is driving inevitably towards Jesus' death. He had been sort of almost dealing with this period as a funnel, as in the, the hour is coming, the hour is near, the hour is here, the hour is upon us. Jesus, through the Gospel of John, kept discussing the hour as a point in his ministry toward which everything pointed. Everything was about this hour. And so what was that? Well, when he was out at Bethany, he, which is outside of Jerusalem, and uh, he had healed Lazarus, he had raised Lazarus up from the dead, and, and that was an, an incredible miracle, and it was a foreshadow of what Christ was going to do for all mankind who believed in him. And then he says, I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. And the disciples are like, Don't you, huh? you're not going to go back there, are you? You're going to die. You're going to die. They're going to kill you if you go back there. And Jesus recognizes this. Jesus knows this. And one disciple even says, well, if he's going to go back and die, we're going to go die with him. I think it was Thomas. I can't remember. But there's this sense that it's like Jesus is moving toward destiny. He's moving toward his moment. And so he's fully aware that his time had come. And as I said, we're inevitably charging toward this. When he, I mean, when he came into Jerusalem, he didn't try to lie low either. He, he came in on a donkey fulfilling uh, Zechariah, the Old Testament prophecy of the king riding into Jerusalem. There was a parade for him and people threw their coats on the ground. And then he actually uh, overturned the temple. He, he, he blasted the leaders in the temple and, and wrecked their stuff. I mean, he was not trying to keep a low profile during this last week in Jerusalem. <clears throat> he was raising the ire to the point of boiling of the leaders in Jerusalem. And of course, Jesus is not surprised at all that this is uh, what's happening. He predicted that he had to go back to Jerusalem and he had to be handed over and he had to die. There, there's no mystery here of what his trip to Jerusalem was about. So Jesus was aware <clears throat> that his time had come. He anticipated a violent confrontation with the authorities. As I said, he predicted that it would result in his death. And so he had spent time with the disciples on this Thursday evening of what they call Passion Week, and he had given the Last Supper. He had washed the disciples' feet. Some of these pictures that you may be familiar with or Christianity is uh, portrayed as being uh, cliche or typical, but Christ had taught them after this. And during this time, Judas had been dismissed from the group. Do you, do you remember that where Jesus kind of said to Judas, you know, this is your last chance to abandon your plan. And instead of stopping, Judas actually dips his bread into the cup with Christ. And, and that solidifies his identity as the one who would go and betray. And Jesus says, well, that's what you've chosen. Go and do it quickly. So he dismisses Judas. Then Jesus teaches the other disciples at length on life after he goes, how they're going to be on a mission, how the Holy Spirit's going to come, how he's going to be with them, how they're going to be persecuted. He really is equipping the disciples for their future life. And so when that ends, Jesus finishes that segment in chapter 17 with the high priestly prayer. And we did a three-week series on the high priestly prayer. And I would encourage you to go listen to that because it's, it's powerful. It's Jesus praying to his father. 
It's Jesus praying for the first generation of believers. It's Jesus praying for the church that would come thereafter. And it's incredibly encouraging. And so I'd encourage you to check that out on our, on our podcast. But that finished off that section. Then they leave Jerusalem. This all took place within the city, I believe. Then they left the city. And it says that they went out and they retreated to a garden. A garden. They went to a garden. This is a place where you might go in your backyard to enjoy a book or a glass of lemonade maybe today. Um, It's a place of peace and solace and rest and uh, quiet. But when Jesus came to this garden, he didn't come to find peace. He came to wage war. Jesus entered into a, a prayer marathon, which resulted in his sweating like drops of blood and even rebuking the disciples for their Uh, lack of commitment to this prayer uh, battle that Christ is in. Now Jesus enters prayer and he emerges uh, victorious from this moment of despair that he has. Now that's not covered in our text. Um, That's covered in the other gospels. Matthew, Luke, and Mark describe that in a different way. And they they sort of highlight Jesus in despair and praying and sweating like he does and even asking God to spare him from the death he was about to experience. Can you imagine? The Son of God is actually asking, and, and, I, and I think that when Jesus was tempted in the, in the book of Luke, remember he was victorious, he quoted scripture to Satan, and instead of capitulating to Satan, he, he fended off his temptation. And then Luke says that Satan left to return at a more opportune time. There's a prediction in there that Satan was going to return to Christ to tempt him in some other way. And I believe that this was that moment where where, where Satan came, spoke with Christ saying, you know, it doesn't have to be like this. It doesn't have to be this violent. It doesn't have to be this hard for you. And I believe this is is a little bit of speculation. It doesn't say that in the text, but it's very um, possible because Christ at this moment is crying out to God, is there any other way, God? Is there any other way for you to forgive people than for me to shed my own blood? And then by the time he's finished praying, he says, Lord, not what I will, but what you will, O God. And so he emerges victorious from that, submitted to God. But John doesn't frame the struggle like that. He doesn't frame this time in the garden like that. This is framed in such a way that I think has a lot to do with John's thesis, which I repeat almost every week. In John chapter 20, just a page over, in 31, verse 31, John says, I wrote these things, these things are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, which is a word, uh, it's from the Hebrew word for Messiah, that Jesus was the chosen one, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name, okay? That's what John is trying to show. So at this point, he's not attempting to show the mere humanity of Christ, which maybe the other authors were showing, but he's showing the identity of Jesus as the Son of God, which is an emphasis on the power of Christ as opposed to an emphasis on the struggle. It doesn't mean that both things didn't happen at the same time. Jesus was God and man, but John chooses to emphasize Jesus' power, his authority, and his sovereignty. So that's a little bit of background on on why John's writing the way he is and why it says what it does. But let's look at our text. When Jesus had spoken these words, that refers back to his massive teaching uh, lesson for the disciples from about chapter 12, 13 on through 17. When he had spoken these words, he went out 
with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So there's a garden. Let's look at this garden for a minute. This is across the Kidron Valley. Now, this is not the first time the Kidron Valley is mentioned in the scriptures. It's actually very significant to the history of Israel, the people of God. The Kidron Valley was a place where way back in the book of 2 Kings, uh, a king named Josiah, he heard the word of God and, and, and he was broken about how messed up his people were and how sinful they were. And, and, and he said to Hilkiah, the high priest, uh, this is, we're way out of line here. We need to get rid of our idols. And so what they do is they tear down all the idols that are in the temple of God. Isn't that sad to have idols in God's house? And they tear them all down and they go down to the Kidron Valley and they burn them. They light them on fire down there. It's awesome. They take them outside of the city and they destroy their idols down there in the Kidron Valley. It's also a place where kings... Uh, were buried. There are tombs kind of in the valley area there. The Kidron Valley is a low depression point between uh, the hilltop of Jerusalem and then the Mount of Olives on the other side. So we're talking about being outside of the city walls of Jerusalem and Jesus going out to this secluded place with his disciples. It really reminds us, and it reminded me that Jesus' whole ministry takes place literally right on the soil, out of the soil of the Jewish story the Jewish history, Jewish tradition, uh, Jewish religion, Jewish pietism, all of this, Jesus, his preaching, his miracles, everything he did was on the backdrop of what God had done with the people of Israel or the Jews for about 1,500 years. Okay, There's, there's no shortage of context for us to understand why Jesus did things and how he did them and how people understood what he did. Right? When he said, I am the bread of life, that to the people of Israel, to whom he was speaking, reminded them of the time when they were in the desert, when bread came out of heaven and formed as kind of flour on the, on the, the, the ground, and they would gather this flour called manna, and they would bake bread out of it. So God miraculously provided bread. Then Jesus came along and said, I am the bread of life. He who eats of my flesh will never grow hungry. So what Christ is saying is, I am what God did for your forefathers to you right now. And so the richness of Israel's history is just constantly in view here. And it reminds me here as he crosses the Kidron Valley um, that this is happening right in the heart of Judaism. So Jesus and his disciples had left the city where they had supper. So they go outside of the city and they cross the valley to this garden. Now, Matthew and Mark Both call this garden by its particular name. You might have heard it, Gethsemane. Gethsemane, the garden of Gethsemane. You know, none of the gospels actually put that full phrase together. None of the gospels say, then they went to the garden of Gethsemane. None of them say that. The other two writers, Matthew and Mark, call it uh, the place that is called Gethsemane. But then John here, notice in your Bibles, he says, they went to a place where there was a garden. Just a garden. He just says garden. Now, the word Gethsemane means oil press. It was an olive garden with olive trees. Now, if, if you know how wine is made or olive oil is made, it's a process of friction and pressure. Now, that's what Matthew and Mark are displaying in Jesus' interaction with this time. He's being squeezed. He's being tempted. He's battling in prayer. In the, in, the, in the garden of Gethsemane, in the garden of 
the oil press. Okay, but here John doesn't bring us that picture. He doesn't emphasize the pressing and the pressure on Christ. He emphasizes the fact that it was a garden. Now, we're gonna get, I think we're going to get a little bit more into the comparison of the garden later because I think what John is doing and the way he opens his gospel, I think tips us off a little bit that John is very aware of the book of Genesis. The beginning of his gospel says, um, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Does that remind you of the beginning of Genesis at all? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so John begins his gospel the same way. And then later, instead of calling it the Gethsemane, he says the garden. They entered the garden. And and, and I think it's intentional, though it's not explicit here, but I'm going to share more on this later, that he's intending to remind us of another garden and another man who faced temptation in that garden. That man was Adam, okay? And we're going to touch on that a little bit more. But what John is showing us is showing us is the beginning of this seed that we later recognize in Scripture that Jesus became like a second Adam to us. And we're going to go more on that, but, I, but for now, we want to see the garden, the place um, where man first fell, and, and the comparison when Jesus enters that garden and enters temptation. As I said, we're going to bring that a little bit more together later. But he does, he brings the disciples with him. Let's not miss that. He doesn't go there alone. Jesus doesn't go there alone like he often did. He went off by himself to pray. Well, right now he brings the disciples with him. He keeps them close. He doesn't say, okay, guys, I'll meet you back in Jerusalem for breakfast uh, at 8 a.m. No, he brings him, them with him. And this was pretty late in the evening by this point. It was dark. Okay, the supper had ended. Excuse me. They had left the upper room. It was now nighttime. And in fact, these disciples and Jesus, they, they pull an all-nighter. Uh, Nobody gets any sleep on this evening. And right now they're in the garden and Jesus brings them with him. And there's, I think, three reasons why he brings them. This is important, right? Because these guys later become the apostles who preached the message of Jesus all over the near uh, world at that time. So Jesus makes sure to bring them with him into this critical moment in his ministry. There's three reasons that I can see plainly. Uh, Number one, he enlists them for prayer. Now that's not covered in our text, but Jesus says to them, stay here and watch and pray. And then he goes off to pray, right? And he comes back and finds them doing what probably most of us would have been doing at that late hour if somebody asked us to stay up and pray, which was he found them sleeping. And he says, could you not even pray for one hour? Could you not even pray for one hour? So he enlists them for prayer. This is an important piece of discipleship for them. They would also witness his betrayal and his arrest. This is very important as well. The disciples are witnesses to the betrayal and arrest of Jesus Christ because this is part of fulfilling scripture. They were witnesses to the fact that everything that happened in Jesus' life was predicted in the Old Testament. Number three, they were there so that they could be spared from the arrest and execution that Jesus was going to face right? That they would actually be spared. And we see that as a fulfillment of Jesus' words as well. So Jesus is able to stand between them uh, and the authorities. So they had often visited this garden. Now, this garden was, it says that they were often there. It was very likely a site where they would go um, for debrief. Jesus was with the disciples often, and he did things that they were confused by, and he would maybe bring them back to the garden and say, okay, guys, it's classroom time. 
And so let's pray together. Let's, let's understand together what's happening here. So the garden was like a kind of a hangout for them. It's where they went to, to get away, to have some quiet. And it says that they went there often. Now it says that Judas, who betrayed him, he also knew the place. So it, it's clear that the disciples had been there before, that they had spent time there. And, and just as a matter of interest, I did some research on the trees in there. There are trees that stand in that garden today that are over a thousand years old, which means very likely that the seeds that planted the trees that are there right now are seeds that fell from the trees um, that sheltered Jesus Christ as he prayed that night. These trees are old, okay? And, and, and they're still there. And it, it's just this amazing reality. And I don't know how many of you have been or hope to go to what they call the Holy Land, but um, this, is, this is real history. This happened in a time and in a place and in a place that we can still visit. So that's the garden for now. And I said, we'll, we'll return to some of that theme later. But then we have the betrayal because Judas is introduced here in verse two. Judas who betrayed him also knew the place. This garden wasn't just a place of uh, peace and, and prayer and learning. It was a place of betrayal. It was the scene uh, of Judas leading the authorities to Christ for a final time. And we see that it was Judas who was the betrayer. Judas was a longtime follower of Christ from, from right in the beginning. He had followed Christ and, and lived with him and ate with him and slept with him for three years, nearly three years. So it's unbelievable to us and it should shock us the way John sets this phrase up. Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place. So what happened to Judas? Well, he was pulled aside by greed, opportunism. He sold out Jesus for about $600 in today's dollar, 30 pieces of silver. That's what it amounted to, maybe a week's wage for a worker. John is very careful to point out um, that Judas was the betrayer. He makes sure we know who the betrayer is. And not that he had uh, accidentally done something silly to give up Jesus' um, position as if he was speaking and sort of something slipped. He makes it clear that Judas intentionally did this, that he went out from their midst, he betrayed Jesus Christ, he sold him for a price, and then he led the authorities there. Uh, John actually goes so far as to retroactively insert this label earlier in the narrative to a point where nobody... None of of the disciples actually knew uh, what was going on with Judas. When Jesus said to Judas, uh, what you are doing, do it quickly. This is during the the upper room exchange. And the disciples thought that he was asking Judas to go buy bread for the feast. Like, oh, just hurry into town because we need to get it quick. The disciples had no idea Judas was the betrayer, but John says Judas who betrayed retroactively in that part of the text. John is very clear to make the identity of the betrayer known. This is not accidental. It's not easily forgiven, if at all. He also shows that Judas had intentionally pursued this action. Now, to call someone a betrayer is not something you do lightly, is it? It's treachery. It's treason. Okay, Some of the highest punishments that governments have are reserved for those who commit treason or betrayal. It's one of the worst crimes uh, that you can imagine happening because it involves somebody being close to you 
with whom you've been vulnerable and open, using that against you and then turning their back on you. It's one of the worst types of human uh, crime that we can commit one against another. The Greek word for betray uh, is the same uh, Greek word. It means to hand over. It means to give up, to present. And it's the same word that, Je- that Jesus uses when he's telling the disciples that they will be handed over to the authorities to be killed. It's that same word, it's to be handed over. And so that word, you're making sure that people know that this person is not a friend of God. He's an enemy of God and he's an enemy of God's people. To hand over, to betray up to those who would destroy God's people. Judas was not a victim or a backslider or somebody caught up in a little bit of rebellious sin. John is making us uh, clearly known that Judas was an enemy of God and an enemy of his people. Now, when Jesus had dismissed Judas, this was the moment when Judas went and assembled the authorities. It says here that he had procured a band of soldiers and officers. He had procured a band. So when Jesus dismissed them, during that time when Jesus was teaching, Judas was back in the city telling the authorities, now is the time. The authorities had a lot of difficulty arresting Jesus Christ. They had sent people to arrest him. And when the soldiers returned, they said, well, where's Jesus? And they were like, no man ever spoke like this. Like, that's your excuse for not arresting him? Sometimes they were just so in awe of Christ, they couldn't tie him up. They, they were just fearful of doing that to Christ. At other times, they were afraid of the people. Matthew 21, 46 says that the authorities wanted to arrest Jesus, but they were afraid of the people because the people believed that he was a prophet. So the authorities had this real conundrum. Like, man, we want Jesus out of here, but we're afraid to arrest him because the people think that he's from God. We don't want to be seen as an enemy of God, so we better not arrest Jesus Christ. They were caught in their own hypocrisy. They were caught in their own two-mindedness and, and two-facedness and lack of faith in God. They thought that they were standing for God, but they truly hated God, and so they didn't even know what to do with his son. And so that's why Judas helps. Judas was one of Jesus' own. Now, you can... I wrestled with this for a while. Why did Jesus need to be betrayed? Jesus was openly among them. Jesus was always there. Why would you need to betray him? It wasn't like he was up on some Bavarian uh, sh- you know, chateau hiding out from the authorities. He was right down among the people. So why did the authorities need Judas? Well, there's a couple reasons. I think one of them is, has to do with the fact with opportunism. They needed a time when Christ wasn't surrounded by people. They could arrest him in secret and they could control the trial. They could control the language. They could manipulate what people thought about Christ once he was arrested because this isn't optics everything. We think we're the visual culture now. Man, how do things change when Jesus is bound, looking like a criminal, how easy it is to convince people that he has sinned. Yet when he was among walking with the people, he was like, man, it was hard to touch him. So the authorities knew this. They needed an opportunity. And it says here that Judas knew the place. What does that tell you? That's what he shared with the authorities. 
And even so, and, I, and this is again speculation, but it's very possible that while Judas was with Jesus in the upper room and Jesus was talking about dying, talking about humility, Judas sensed this might be the time where he's going to surrender easily without a big commotion. It's possible. That's not in the scriptures. But Judas was helpful to the authorities because he went out and he said, it's late at night. Judas, uh, Jesus is in a real reflective mood. He's humble. He's looking towards his own defeat. I think now might be the time to move. And I can tell you where they are. And it's outside the city. It's the perfect timing. And it helps explain why the trial was so badly prepared. I mean, this trial was a gong show. It flipped back and forth between authorities multiple times. Nobody had any tangible evidence against Jesus. It was a mess. That's possibly because the, the arrest of Jesus Christ happened so rapidly. It's very unlikely that the authorities wanted to arrest Jesus before the Passover feast, right? I mean, this is like tens of thousands of, sorry, that's, I have no idea the number. Many more people, I'm just used to talking in our kind of modern terms, right? On Canada Day, there'll be tens of thousands of extras as opposed to regular. But in, in this time, nonetheless, Jerusalem was flooded with foreigners coming to the, to the temple and Jews from outside the area to, to worship, to pay their respects, to, to purchase sacrificial animals. It was a bad time to stir up the crowd by arresting Jesus Christ. Very bad time. So very likely the authorities didn't want to arrest Jesus at that time. But when Judas came to them and said, I think now's your opportunity, they moved. They got ready, they got their torches and their weapons, and they moved. And Judas passed uh, as being a follower of Christ is contrasted sharply with his chosen path. Look at verse 5. It says that... Um, Jesus had spoken to them and they looked for Jesus and Jesus said, I am he. And then it says, Judas who betrayed him was standing with them. That's this amazing little phrase in there. Judas was standing with them. Judas found himself here on the wrong side of history. Although at this moment, it looked like the winning side. The side that came with weapons and clubs and ready to arrest Jesus Christ. Judas was standing with them, the strong side the armed side, the more numbers, the big group side, the popular side. Judas thought he was on the right side at that moment. And yet we'll see shortly, even this very own night, uh, he recognized what a terrible, terrible decision it was. So do you wonder about Judas? You probably do if you're like me. What, what happened? What's the deal with Judas? Well, he was carried off, as I said earlier, by his own lust for acceptance by the authorities, by petty greed. But do you know why he was primarily led astray? Because he lacked commitment or faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, of those that you gave me, I have lost none except the son of perdition, which means that of all those who came to Christ, none of them were lost except the one who did not have faith in him. We see even earlier that, that Judas was the keeper of the money bag and he stole from it. He had no heart for God. He had no heart. He liked being a part of this movement that was seeing miracles and maybe gaining popularity, but he did not want to identify with Christ. He had no faith in him, and so he was carried off by his sin. It made me think again of this uh, parallel in Genesis when Cain and Abel both offer sacrifices to God, these two brothers. And God is pleased with Abel's sacrifice, and he is not pleased with Cain's sacrifice, and Cain is angry about it. And God visits Cain 
And he said to them, he said to Cain, sin is crouching at your door. Its desire is for you. But you must rule over it. This is the truth of everybody, but especially those who are not quite belonging to God or not quite uh, in, in faith in Jesus Christ, that sin is crouching at the door. And this was true for Judas all the way along. And Christ gave him an opportunity at the 11th hour to change his mind. Sin was crouching at the door for Judas and its desire was to devour him. Peter also says later that Satan is like a lion who prowls around looking for somebody to devour, to destroy, to tempt away from God. And Judas answered that bell. He let sin consume him. It's a very real warning, my friends. Sin is at the door. It is crouching. And this is the fate of those who answer the doorbell for sin. It is not pretty. It is not fulfilling. It does not draw you close to Jesus Christ. One last thing on the betrayal. Don't miss the irony here that these officers and soldiers came. Uh, this was a combination of Roman uh, soldiers and Jewish authorities who had come. They had come in droves. There was a massive band of soldiers. And it says that they came at Jesus with weapons and torches and, and, uh, and lanterns. Wow, did they ever come ready for a fight? Judas might have said, you know, there's only 11 of 12 of them down there, but I would just make sure you're armed because Jesus, I've seen him do some crazy stuff. So the authorities, imagine getting ready to go out. Oh, we're just going to arrest Jesus. Oh, good luck with that. So they came ready. They came ready to swarm him and beat him down and make sure that he wasn't going to mess up their plan. They came ready with weapons and torches. And isn't it ironic how Jesus, who John calls the light of the world, now they come by night seeking him with torches. They were darkened by their inability to accept Christ for what he was. They were dark in their understanding. John says the light came and the darkness did not comprehend it. Darkness couldn't understand who Jesus was. So they come at him with torches and weapons like Jesus is going to fight. So that's the garden, that's the betrayal. And now we come to the jewel of the text, Jesus Christ. As I said, Jesus knew all along that his return was going to amount to this. Jesus even knew that he wasn't going to die from an angry mob. He wasn't just going to be stoned to death in the street spontaneously. He said specifically that he would be handed over to the authorities. And so this band of priests, officers, soldiers, they came to Jesus, they came to the garden. And it was dark and they probably didn't see him from afar off. And then Jesus in verse four, knowing all that would happen to him, totally aware, seeing down the tunnel of time and having complete clarity about what was about to go down, he stepped forward. It says that he came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered, the crown of our text, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. As I said before, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to 
the ground. Have you ever noticed that phrase in scripture before? Jesus, by the breath of his mouth, blasted over a group of soldiers and priests. Soldiers. Not servant girls. Not scholars who don't have much muscular mass. Soldiers. Jesus blew them over with the breath of his mouth when he spoke his name. That phrase, I am he, in the Greek simply says, I am. I am. That's the name that the priest would recognize God said his name was to Moses when he spoke from the burning bush. When God said, go to Pharaoh and tell them, tell him to free my people. And Moses said, who should I tell him who sent me? And God says, I am. Tell them, I am sent you. And Jesus steps up and says, who are you looking for? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth, I am. The divinity of Jesus Christ, his full godness is on display here, folks. There's nothing short of Jesus as the almighty, the eternal son of God, with God at the beginning of creation, not created, not existent at a moment in time, but eternal and powerful, just like God. Because he was God. So they pursued Jesus. Now, why, why did they hate Jesus so much? Maybe we have a hard time understanding that maybe as Christians. Like what, like, what was the deal? Why was there so much hatred? I think there's two reasons. Number one was, as I said, he was the light <clears throat> and the darkness hated the light. So that's just obvious. Number two was that Jesus threatened the geopolitical order in Israel. Okay, Israel wasn't fully sovereign at this point. They had a bit of a state, a bit of a governance, uh, but they were under the umbrella of Roman rulership. That's who Pilate was. Pilate was given the charge over the Jewish people. And so the Jews wanted sovereignty. They wanted to be restored to a sovereign kingdom like they had back in the Old Testament. And when Jesus came, he promised none of that to them. In fact, he, he thrashed the leaders of Israel for being hypocrites and talking about how they were going to be thrown out of the vineyard and there was going to be new people brought in to maintain the vineyard. All they saw was Jesus threatening their geopolitical order. This is explicit in John 11. John chapter 11, read that later if you want proof that this is why they were afraid. And this is why we get to Caiaphas's uh, claim later about one man dying for the city. And we're going to touch on that a little bit in a minute. But he threatened to decentralize and delegitimize uh, the hip hip hypocritical governance that was in place at the time. The blind leading the blind, as Jesus said. And so John, instead of uh, portraying the agonized, the spiritual agony that Jesus um, experienced, he chooses to highlight Christ as the Son of God, the Master of all things. That's the Jesus that we see here in the garden. Number one, he had power over his accusers. There's three ways that John shows that. He had power over his accusers. Later, we're going to find out that Pilate says to Jesus, hey, don't you recognize that I have authority over you? And Jesus says, you would have no authority if it weren't given to you by my father. Snap. Pilate's got nothing on that. Jesus, even here in the garden, by the, by the darkness of night, when they come at him with weapons, he has power over them. He steps forward. 
He's not hiding behind a tree like, oh no, who's that? He steps forward. He sees them coming. He hears them coming. And he's standing maybe at the, the foot of the garden before they even get there. And he addresses them and he gives the first question. Jesus rules, okay? He rules. He's not cowering in the corner like maybe if they just don't ask, I won't have to lie and then I'll just be like right here. No way. He steps up and he says, who are you looking for? And they're like, Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And they're blasted backwards. Does Jesus not have power over his accusers in this moment? In this moment where he is betrayed by one of his own at his most vulnerable, at his weakest point. He has power over his accusers. Number two, he has jurisdiction over his own people. This is God. He has jurisdiction over his own people. Now, his people were citizens of of, uh, maybe Jerusalem, or at least they belonged to the Jewish faith. These these soldiers could have easily just rounded the whole lot up. Wouldn't that have been more effective? Like, if we're going to get the leader, we might as well get the whole lot, because then they can be witnesses against him. We can make them all an example. We can crucify them all together. We'll have 12 crosses up. That's probably what the motive of these guys were. And yet, what does Jesus say? He asks them again, who do you seek? And they say, Jesus of Nazareth. I wonder what they were thinking. What's going to happen if we answer a third time? Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. I mean, he is in charge right here. I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is using like apologetics 101 here. He gets them to confess who they're looking for. And then he says, great, if you're looking for me, then you have nothing to do with these men. Should have said all of them, right? Too late. Jesus has jurisdiction. He says, if you're looking for me, then let these men go. You just stated, he basically said, show me your arrest warrant. And they said, it's Jesus of Nazareth. And he said, great, these men are free. So Jesus is totally in control of this arrest situation. This bust. How many times do you hear about the SWAT busting in on a a crime gang and the crime gang's like, okay, great. This is how it's going to go. That person's going to go free. You don't get to touch any of my stuff. And um, I'm going to embarrass you first. Okay, criminals don't usually get that luxury. But Jesus Christ, the son of God, is in total control. He releases his disciples. He lets them go and he shows grace for his own. And isn't this amazing? The soldiers grant it. Isn't that crazy? The soldiers are like, okay, they can go. Jesus is the one who's in control here. And it's a beautiful thing. This was again, as we saw, it's to fulfill the words that he had prayed back in the high priestly prayer. Of those you gave me, I lost none. John says that right here. Let these men go. John says this was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those you gave me, I lost none. So John is being careful to show us that even in these hour-by-hour interactions, Jesus is proving himself powerful. He's proving himself sovereign. This is all for the disciples to see, by the way. And then number three, how much God is Jesus? He shows healing mercy for his enemies. Peter pulls out a sword at that point. He drew it and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. That probably really hurt. The servant's name was Malchus. He gets his name in the Bible, though, because of this. Okay? 
And then Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? And Jesus, it's not in our text this morning, but Jesus heals the ear. He puts it back on. He fixes the ear up. Jesus is even merciful to his enemies. Jesus is in total control. In the midst of this confrontation, he shows his full power as God. And so I pray that as you're looking in this text and hearing this, that you draw near to Christ. Because this is Christ when he could have showed absolute wrath and fury on these guys. And he heals one of his enemies. He protects his own. And he shows total sovereignty over the whole situation. So we see Peter's momentary courage, which is totally out of line with Jesus' willingness to submit to God. Rather than resistance, Jesus says, no, 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 no. You're not informed. You're not informed by trusting God. He he said, there's a higher purpose. Now, I believe that Jesus won this confidence in prayer. Jesus was pretty shaken up an hour earlier, wasn't he? Saying, God, if you would let this cup pass, please let it be so. And yet when Peter strikes the ear and says, we're not going to let you take Jesus, he says, no, I'm going to drink the cup that the Father's given me. Now, I wonder if Peter might not have done that and if if instead of falling asleep, he had stayed up praying. Maybe he would have gained some of that trust, some of that heart of God to understand what he was doing. But he fell asleep. So he's still Peter at this point, just thrashing around, getting that sword out. Jesus speaks to his indomitable uh, obedience to God. He's won his confidence in prayer. And although he asked God to find another way, he's going to drink it. He's going to drink this cup. And I need to point out how incredible it is to see the Trinity at work for us. The interaction between the Father and the Son. God asks Jesus to take this cup. Only God could ask of this, of Jesus. Only God can give this cup. This cup is the cup of his wrath against sin. It's wrath. You know, people say, don't we serve a loving God? Don't you want to serve a God who deals with sin? When you look at news headlines, when you look at, and Blair, Blair, Blair prayed this morning for uh, the persecuted church, what's going on against God's people and against the innocent in our world is terrible. And if we don't serve a God who's going to deal with it, that's not a God you want to have anything to do with. But instead, God pours out his wrath against sin for those who would believe. He pours it out out against Jesus Christ. So only God can give this cup and only Jesus Christ could receive it. This is why Jesus is the anointed one. He's the chosen one. He's the Messiah. He is the sin bearer. In Isaiah, it says that by his wounds, we are healed. Now, if Jesus had sinned, his death would be righteous for for him. He'd be dying for his own sin. But because he was perfect, the cup of God's wrath against a perfect man. Jesus' righteousness could then be given to others. The penalty that Jesus took was not for himself. It was for somebody else. That's the gospel. That's why only Jesus Christ can can take that cup. And this is where we come into that idea that Jesus is our second Adam. Romans chapter 5 lays this out so beautifully. Maybe read that this afternoon with your family or by yourself. Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that in Adam, because we were all born out of Adam, he's our first father, he's the first dude who ever lived, and Eve, the first woman who ever lived, we all come from them. Paul says that in Adam, 
because Adam sinned, he passed that along to every person who would ever live. In Adam, we all die. God said to Adam in, in, the, in the garden, if you eat from that tree, you shall surely die. That was the curse of disobedience. And we all fall under that curse. We're all gonna die because we've all disobeyed. We inherited that from our first father, Adam. But then it says that in Christ, the second Adam, the many will receive life. Not everybody, not every human being, but the many, those who are in Jesus Christ will receive eternal life. So this passage is dripping with the substitutionary nature of Jesus' life. Now that's a big word, but substitution, meaning Jesus swaps himself out for those who belong to him. He did it right here in the garden with his own followers, right? In a very physical, you can see it happening way. He says, let these men go and take me. Jesus substitutes himself in and lets his disciples go free. That's a picture of what he does for all of humanity who believe in him. He substitutes, he takes the wrath of God upon himself so that we might be free. And this is where I wanna, I just wanna close with a comparison of these gardens. Because where Adam failed in the garden when he was tempted, Jesus succeeds. And there's no way I have time remotely to to show the ways that Christ uh, fulfills where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded and and what that means for us. But I'm going to finish with a quote from Arthur Pink, who I think highlights the beauty of this in kind of a a cascading way. So um, just open your brain up for a minute and and get ready for a dump. And, And I can't tease these all out, but may God show the beauty of Christ in this. The entrance of Christ into the garden, writes Pink, at once reminds us of Eden. The contrast between them are indeed most striking. In Eden, all was delightful. In Gethsemane, all was terrible. In Eden, Adam and Eve parlayed with Satan. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought the face of his father. In Eden, Adam sinned. In Gethsemane, our Savior suffered. In Eden, Adam fell. In Gethsemane, the Redeemer conquered. The conflict in Eden took place by day. The conflict in Gethsemane was waged at night. In the one, Adam fell before Satan. In the other, the soldiers fell before Christ. In Eden, the human race was lost. In Gethsemane, Christ announced, Of them that thou gavest me, I have lost none. In Eden, Adam took the fruit from Eve's hand. In Gethsemane, Christ received the cup from the Father's hand. In Eden, Adam hid himself. In Gethsemane, Christ boldly showed himself. In Eden, God sought Adam. In Gethsemane, the last Adam sought God. In Eden, Adam was driven. From Gethsemane, Christ was led. In Eden, the sword was drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword was sheathed. And so we see that Christ is the beautiful second Adam for us. In every way that we fail, Christ succeeds. The story of the gospel is that Jesus is the hero. Jesus was everything that Adam could not be, that Israel could not be, that we cannot be. He is the beloved son who pleases God. And if we are in faith in him, we belong to him. He has given us his righteousness for himself. 
In Jesus Christ, we are set free because of his obedience to God, and we are released from bondage as, as his people were at this time. We are participants in the righteousness and victory of Christ, despite our fallen nature. And this text ends essentially with reminding us of this. Um, Caiaphas, it reminds us of this quote, Caiaphas had said to the Jews, it's going to be expedient that one man should die for the people. Caiaphas was high priest at the time, and and we read that he didn't even realize that he was prophesying at the time. What he was saying was, if you kill Jesus, then Israel's not going to be overthrown. It's not going to fall into chaos. So if you kill Jesus, you're going to save all these people. But what he really meant was, if you kill Jesus, then people will live because they will have faith in him and they will believe and they will be counted righteous before God. Caiaphas unknowingly prophesies the gospel in his own sinful intentions. Jesus dies, we live. That's how this text ends. 